0: Welcome back to another episode of the Coffee Bean of Life. And in today's episode, we're going to be talking about the environment and sustainability in general. And we have a very special guest joining us today.
1: Yeah. Hi, everyone. My name is Kate. And in 2018, I founded this campaign called Bring Your Own Bottles Singapore. So basically, encouraging people to use their own water bottles or tumblers to buy drinks outside instead of using the usual plastic cup. Um, And over the past few years, I've also gotten more involved in climate advocacy in general. So, really, just fighting for not just plastics but climate justice.
0: Hmm. Alright, so I'll get the ball rolling. I'm just gonna start with a simple question. Like, you just tell us a bit more about yourself, like, and like your most recent trip, because I found that really cool. Like, the fact they went on this conference and stuff. And you can tell a bit more about like what made you so passionate about environmental advocacy in particular. Because you know, there's a lot of critical social issues now, like, uh, LGBTQ plus rights, other issues like racial harmony, that kind of thing. So like, what made you want to like go for environmental advocacy in particular?
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, this is a story that I tell very often, which is that I actually wasn't anyone like interested in environmental issues at all up till, I think, 2018. Um, and so basically, 2018, I entered JC, and I was suddenly surrounded by a lot of peers who cared about environmental issues. And I think Singapore also, like, in general, was gaining traction that year. And so I slowly started getting more invested in it. And then it kind of just reached a point where I was reading so much about it and I couldn't just, like, not care anymore. So I started off with Bring Your Own bottle Singapore. And then from there, I think slowly just started researching more, getting more involved in local environmental groups and slowly even expanding it to, like, international or regional environmental groups as well. Um, And so when COVID hit and everyone, like literally the entire world went into lockdown, that was when social media really came into play in terms of connecting with people across um, the globe. And that's how I got plugged into the international climate space and then started volunteering for the UN Environment Programme, their youth constituency. And so all that kind of just culminated um, in more opportunities in getting to do international policy work. And this year, finally, I got to go in person to a climate conference, which was the UN Stockholm Plus Fifty, in Sweden, um, and that was really exciting because I got to meet a lot of colleagues who I've been working online with for a very long time throughout COVID, but now we were finally like in person, and it was just like a very surreal experience.
2: Um, you know, Kate, as I was telling you before the conversation, uh, before the recording started, I've been following you for over two years, and I'm so um, proud of the work you do and so happy to follow it. The reason I started following you actually was because I think you were doing a series on vegetarian restaurants in Singapore and I have been vegetarian since I was young because um, now because of uh, car- the carbon footprint and uh, climate reasons too. So I'd be interested in knowing um, what got you in, uh, plugged into that space in terms of uh, veganism and vegetarianism and your feelings about that especially um, kind of, I think, now the class disparity that exists in people who adopt vegetarian lifestyles and those who don't.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, before that, I just want to jump back on a point, which was about why I care about the environment over other social issues, right? Mm. I think that's a very important one to address. Um, and honestly, I feel like environmental issues cut into social issues a lot, and not mm. everyone recognizes that kind of intersection. Mm. So, for example, I started caring about climate, like not because I'm a nature person. And all my environmental friends know this, because it's really weird. I'm vegan, and I'm, like, all this, like, a climate advocate. But if you ask me to go for, I don't know, like, some long nature walk, I'm probably going to say no, because it's just, I don't see trees and, like, all these plants as, like... How do I say this without offending people? (laughs) I, I can see, like, I can see them from an intellectual perspective but I don't feel that connection to nature that some people may feel right but I care about climate issues because it affects people like that's really the heart of it for me which is the fact that like you have all these natural disasters happening around the world and in Singapore we are very sheltered from that but not everyone has that luxury of running away from all these environmental harms even something like air con is something I feel we take for granted here um and so bringing it back to climate and why I care about it it's because it's going to affect these people the most, and it already is affecting them. Um, yeah, so I I think I do care about other social issues, but the environment is just my entry point, or my perspective of looking at it. Yeah, okay, sorry to go one round. But going back to plant-based and veganism, um, I went plant-based, I think, 2016, and it was just because I watched this documentary called Earthlings, like, it just popped up on my recommended it's a very graphic video that shows the behind the scenes of factory farming, um, and how animals end up on your table. Uh, and it was just a very gruesome video, so after that I couldn't continue watching anymore. And then I literally went vegetarian overnight, and then slowly transitioned into veganism after I started learning more about the the health and environmental benefits as well. Yeah. Um, That's great. After, yeah class disparity is really important as well but i also think now veganism is becoming like this trend with like avocado toast and soy (laughs) milk lattes and if you look back at history i think vegetarianism was very like it was all throughout history um especially in asia i think like all these chinese mock meats um or like chinese hawker stalls like vegetarian hawker stalls they've existed long before this vegan trend So I think it's just people kind of capitalizing on the trend now and trying to market it in a different way. Um, And I think the class disparity does exist. But my point of view is just if you are able to do it financially, then do it. And if you can't, then just try to cut down wherever you can, like cut down on on beef, which to me is the worst
2: red meat. Yeah. So I, I really liked um, the thing you said about intersectionality earlier on and then something I want to discuss too because I think climate groups in Singapore specifically have really um, pushed the ball on looking at climate justice mm-hmm. in a very intersectional perspective. So be that SG Climate Rally talking about the death penalty and transformative justice and um, other platforms also talking about racism and the repeal of 3778. So I think, um, and this is a perspective I think I largely agree with because, um, for example, if you look at renewable um, electricity projects and how those impact the most vulnerable living uh, along these rivers and whether that is a, a a fair trade-off we should be making. So these things I think are super important. But I'd also like your perspective on the idea that looking at climate justice from such a broad perspective may end up pushing people away who disagree with the, the secondary impacts but largely agree with the idea of solving climate change. So in essence, I guess I'm asking, do you think um, climate movement, uh, climate movements focus on things other than specifically climate change could push away groups who disagree with the other ideas that they're pursuing?
1: I think that's a very good question. And that's probably what's happening in the US right now. Um, <laughs> I So I go to college in the US, right? I'm just back from my summer break. And the polarization is crazy. And I think you kind of start to feel that as someone who cares about climate issues, there's there's a certain stance you have to take on every other issue, when mm. that should not be the case, in my opinion. Um, so I think we do have to be very careful about how we navigate that here in Singapore, um, especially given our local like social and political climate. There are very important intersections um and very direct ones as well and so those we should definitely highlight but i think you kind of have to draw your own personal like comfort level in the senses that you take so there are certain issues that i don't speak up on because i honestly personally don't have a clear stance on it myself um so things like death penalty i don't think i've read up enough to speak much about it yet um or even like lgbtq plus rights
0: yeah mm-hmm. Actually, I agree with the with the bipartisan nature of like the U.S. government, right? I feel like the media itself sort of, like work towards polarizing people on this issue, and I feel like that's why we are sort of facing this like slowdown on like tackling climate change in the U.S., even though it's one of the world's most developed economies. And like that's sort of how in the trans uh, transition to the next question, right? About how like you know, right? the many discussions on whether the limiting factor for the switch to like renewables is due to economic reasons, and like. Or, like, do the scientific reasons. So, like, what's your view on this? Because, like, if you look at the cost of renewables now, right, like the average cost of in- using solar or hydro or even wind, right, it's actually lower than coal or to some extent some forms of natural gas like shale gas. So, like, my concern now, right, is that instead of like switching over to these like better forms of energy, like we should be doing because of how capitalism works anyway, political, like, I guess, political parties are sort of using this. As a voting platform to sort of, I don't know they're sort of limiting the way we can move these energy, uh, renewable forms of energy faster. So, what do you think about first of all, like whether it's really going to be feasible in the long run, considering the storage issues of renewable energies and the impact that political organizations are having on our uh, transition? Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I think you're right in the economic aspect of it, which is that renewables pay for themselves now. Like you don't really have to subsidize it anymore, at least not here because it's already so cost efficient. But specific to Singapore, I would say honestly the main like reason for it is first of all I guess political but not so much anymore because the government is pushing for it now. Mm-hmm. But Singapore really is like land constrained. So it would be geographical reasons here. If we really maxed out like every surface in Singapore, um, like rooftops if you put it on like vertical walls or whatever, it solar can only form like still less than 10% of our mm. energy demand. I think that is by 2050, which is quite a crazy statistic because then where does the remaining 90% come from? You can talk about importing energy from other countries, which is what we are trying with Laos now. Now Laos is like, I think, importing 100 megawatts. Um, but Malaysia just released a statement saying they're not going to export energy to us and so where does that leave us like if we can't generate enough within like locally and then other countries around us don't want to give us the energy um, something has to make up for that shortfall and so I think Singapore is alternative energy disadvantaged um, and it's a tricky one uh, because that's like like literally geographical constraints you physically cannot do it I also feel like another way at looking at this is I think now people talk about switching to renewable energies with the assumption or expectation that our energy demand is just going to continue growing and growing, which is a realistic demand. But we should also be looking at how we can just cut our energy consumption. Like, Why is it that we are already taking it for granted, that it's just going to keep going up, right? When we know that the climate is like facing a crisis, and we should not be consuming so much more. Um, so I think that's also another consideration that, that we should
0: just, actually like, something optimistic council. on that note, right? Is that yeah. I don't know how much you mm-hmm. read about, about up about the fourth industrial revolution and like the Internet yeah. of Things, right? But one of the key like features of the Internet of Things is maximizing efficiency by like sort of minutely adjusting all of these like variable factors in energy production and all that. And I feel like that'll be a key step towards decreasing our energy use. So that's just something to keep in mind. But you know we that talked a bit is, about but, yeah, yeah.
1: sorry, just to touch on that. Maximizing efficiency is still with the assumption that things will continue growing. Because you're kind of looking at how we can grow but keeping it efficient. Whereas I'm talking about like really reducing and cutting down. So, for example, we can talk about how like aircons can become like super efficient, right, with centralized cooling systems and all that. But what if we can look at other ways of cooling without even using the aircon in the first place? Just to give a very simple example.
0: Yeah, Mm. that's true.
2: Yeah I think that's a very interesting perspective about how um, Singapore is just so geographically constrained in terms of getting renewable energy and then also geopolitically constrained in importing energy because that is a very big vulnerability in terms of national security but I think um, when it comes to importing energy I think the interesting idea there is about this collective response to climate change such that national borders become irrelevant and that this is a collective problem that we are facing. So on that note, I'd actually like to hear about um, what you did at the UN Ocean Conference uh, in Lisbon, I believe, uh, and what was discussed there with the uh, international speakers and just all the perspectives that you gave there.
1: Yeah, Um, so UN Ocean Conference was a very interesting one because that's where I kind of found out about deep sea mining and Singapore's stance on it. So just to give some context, because I'm sure there are people who haven't heard of this. Uh, We do mining on land, right? But we are apparently running out of space or terrestrial deposits for it. And so now a lot of countries are looking at mining in the sea, specifically the deep ocean. Um, Commercially, it has not been allowed yet, but it could start to be allowed as early as next year because the international body in charge of it is already starting to draft up regulations for it and they could start giving out licenses for commercial deep sea mining June 2023. Um, and then bring Singapore into this, so Singapore has been, we obtained a exploration license for this back in 2015, meaning that we are already kind of looking at the possibility of it uh, somewhere out in the ocean, I don't know where specifically. and we have been kind of actively pushing for it like hosting the annual deep sea mining summit and different things like that. So at the ocean conference there were a number of islands like small island states calling for a stop to this specifically countries like I think Fiji um, Pulau and a few more because it's going to affect them the most. They're already basically drowning and France has also called for a stop to it but there's still a large number of countries who are pushing for it because they say that we're running out of resources on land. We need to. We need like all these metals. Um, and there's a lot of money, obviously, to be made in this industry. So where does that bring us? Um, I decided to kind of just bring it onto people's radar through Instagram, um, reaching out to different MPs to see who might be willing to raise it in parliament. And I think this is going to be like a kind of a huge issue for the next year or so because, I mean, from my perspective, which is obviously kind of idealistic and people will be like, oh, like, you're young, you don't know anything. But, I mean, we already depleted all the land resources and now you want to turn to the ocean and deplete that too. The thing that makes me the most angry is that they say, well, you need deep sea mining um, for the energy transition because you need these metals for renewable energy I honestly, I'm. I haven't looked at the scientific evidence at this because it isn't really widely available. But I kind of doubt that somehow. I don't think deep sea mining is gonna stop the climate crisis. I think it's gonna do the opposite.
2: Yeah. yeah. Uh, I actually, I think that leads to a very good point about where the resources for the climate transition will come from. Right, all the rare earth metals that are needed, and the fact that these are. Um, concentrated in countries which don't have the best record on human rights so um, where do we where are we left with this and how, how do I, I just think like being a human has become so hard in terms of how we judge our impact because every time you're choosing the lesser of the two evils if you support solar power instead of oil uh, the oil could be from Norway and the metals for your solar panels might be from countries that treat their citizens in the worst way possible. So just, I think, on this really broad idea of how do you judge your own carbon footprint and the impact you're having on people? Um, how how does that kind of um, take place in your mind and how do you make that judgment?
1: Yeah, you know, honestly, that is such a difficult question and I don't have a good answer to it because you're absolutely right. Like, Anything you do is gonna have some kind of terrible impact. Um, especially on the local communities. So that really is no easy way out of it. I think you just kinda like really have to kind of try your best and then that's it. Like you can't yeah. do anything more than that, right? And it's yeah. a very heavy burden to carry if you're just constantly like trying to scrutinize the life cycle assessment of everything because no. you can't. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I guess I didn't. I didn't mean to push you into a corner for that one because I think no, 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 asking okay. individuals to make that decision is unfair in the first place. Given, given how corporations kind of um, are responsible for the largest amount of mm-hmm. carbon emissions. But I think um, something that has really inspired uh, me about you, Kate, is how um, uh, honest you are in your activism and. and the vulnerability that you're willing to put out there on your Instagram and sharing about that. So I'd really be interested in knowing um, what brought you to this point in activism where you think you can be honest in terms of the struggles you're facing and really the burnout that many activists face. Because I often feel the need to, and I wouldn't call myself an activist, of course, but I often feel the need to, as someone who um, believes in certain causes, to put out this image of um, really everything being perfect and this goal being the only thing I'm focused on so how do you balance this in really being a college student having a life apart from the activism that you believe in
1: I think for me it kind of boiled down to the fact that I realised so many people felt the same way um, and if no one is talking about it then we all just keep it to ourselves and then you kind of struggle with eco anxiety alone Yeah, but knowing that other people feel the same way is actually very comforting and it kind of gives me the courage to just talk about it openly because i know that people can resonate um and what helps is like if i post something about how i'm struggling with for example mental health because there's just like a barrage of bad news coming then people will kind of like dm me and say well i'm feeling the exact same way um and then we just talk about how we cope with it together so I think community is really important. And Singapore has a really great environmental community that's just been growing over the last few years. Um, So that's been really helpful. Another thing that I do is sometimes I just completely disconnect from social media because I don't know how the Instagram algorithm works, but it kind of just throws like all this bad news at you all at once. Um, And that's how the news cycle works as well. Yeah. So you really just have to kind Of take time away from that, I feel because there are like good things happening, it's just that no one's gonna report on it because it doesn't give as much views um, or like likes on social media. Yeah,
0: you, oh, I mean, I think, no, right? yeah. yeah, yeah, no, no this actually, actually you a later question, but we're just gonna transition to this topic now since you brought it up. I mentioned like there's like bombardment of bad news, right? With how like our news system works nowadays with clickbait algorithms, all that pushing bad news instead of good news. How like can more people step forward to sort of not feel that level of like discouragement or that sort of like, I don't know, sort of like that helplessness towards climate change, you know? Because like a lot of people mm-hmm. believe that, right? Uh, on an individual level, you can't really do much, considering the fact that roughly 70% of all carbon emissions come from industrial activities in the first place. So how do we encourage people to keep taking those small steps, be like using less plastic, buying less technology stuff, reusing their old goods, instead of like just giving up on the issue completely?
1: Right. Um, well, firstly, disconnecting. That's the first thing I always recommend, because it's what really worked for me. Second thing is deliberately seeking out good news, <laughs> which is, So, I started, I just very recently started this on my Instagram, um, a series called Climate Joy, where every week I'm going to attempt to post about positive things that are happening in the climate space. Because I feel like that's very much needed. And I realized the act of doing, like, deliberately finding good stuff every week has been really good for me. Like, it's something I look forward to now. um, Because it just gives me a lot more hope. Finding community again very very important um, because you need people to kind of motivate you and keep you accountable um, to whatever you're doing. Yeah, in terms of how we can get people to make all these small shifts, I think you can do like a whole bunch of education and campaigns. But at the end of the day, if the in- if the infrastructure isn't there, for example, it's going to be really difficult. Like sometimes I bring my water bottle out and then. I know Singapore tap water is safe to drink, but I don't see anyone going to the toilet to fill their water bottles from like direct from the tap when you're out in a public mall. So, yeah. for example, water coolers like these are kind of basic infrastructure that we could invest in that will help to create or incentivize people to stop using less plastic. But it's not something that is accessible now.
0: Yeah. Actually, on the note of plastic, right? I feel like a lot of people have had felt this like sense of betrayal based on how plastic recycling is actually being done. And like what do you think about that? Like how like what do you think is the fundamental issue with plastic recycling now? Cause like in a lot of countries like especially in Europe there's there's actually a culture of recycling at this point. But despite that, right, a lot of the plastic that's being like recycled per se isn't actually being recycled. It's just being thrown away in landfills. Like only 10% of plastic or something is actually recycled. So like what what do you think is the next step forward from that? Is it just fully comp- like decreasing our plastic use? even though it's so embedded in our society right now or should there be more steps taken by the government specifically to ensure that plastic is being recycled and handled properly?
1: I think contamination is a huge thing in Singapore which is like you can have let's say an entire blue bin filled with clean cardboard and then someone just comes along and throws a pack of curry in it and the whole thing just gets wasted. And I think the government has come up to say that like 40 percent or 40 plus percent of our recycled um stuff tend to get contaminated and so that's a huge chunk um or people just don't bother to wash their cans or stuff like that before they throw in so that's probably one of the biggest problems in singapore um also recycling infrastructure i honestly don't know much about this but i have a feeling we may not have like all the facilities necessary um, to do the recycling in-house which is why Singapore exports a lot of its waste so these are all problems that as a consumer there's not much you can do right and you kind of have to just cross your fingers and hope that whatever you throw in a recycling bin will end up in the right place at the end but it's really out of your control Yeah. so there's a lot of things that it has to come like it really boils down to corporations or the state to do more about it
0: Actually, I have one final lead on from that before I pass the like, mic over The someone later. But like, let's talk a bit more about greenwashing. So, like, something I'm very passionate about is boycotting Nestle because I hate Nestle and their environmental practices. And I really want to make a video on it. It's just that I haven't made one yet because I'm worried I'm going to get sued by them. But like, I've not bought anything from Nestle in like one and a half years because of like, you know, <laughs> they have the, all their sustainability brands and all that. The cocoa is sustainably sourced and then you look at you do like 5 minutes of research and you find out that they employ child labour and all that kind of stuff and you really it really starts to like (laughs) like it really becomes difficult for the average consumer to find brands or companies that are actually sustainably sourced right so like what's the best thing that we can do as a consumer to like find companies that we should be supporting yeah
1: first of all I love that you are so angry at them because same and like not all understand it right because I see people like consuming Nestle products.
2: Everywhere. This, <laughs> this, this is probably a bad time to say that I was eating Coco Crunch yesterday morning.
1: Okay, maybe <laughs> we should start and boycott from there. Yes. But I think simplest answer to the question is start local. Um, because that's kind of the easiest to track their supply chain. And also smaller, independent businesses tend to be more sustainable just inherently because it's a small scale. Um, so if we bring this to issues like fast fashion, H&M, they are coming out with all these sustainable lines. And I really just want to roll my eyes because if you look at the entire business model as a whole, you know that they are not sustainable. Um, and speaking of greenwashing, so a lot of companies, like like I said, H&M, like they have these programs where, oh, if you bring back clothes and recycle it, um we'll give you a voucher and they're like well we're being sustainable because we're incentivizing recycling right but actually what they are doing is they're incentivizing you to come back and consume more because they're giving you a voucher to purchase more of their products but people kind of just take it as well but they're being green like why are you being so harsh on them so I think we really have to educate people more on like the harsh realities behind these supply chains because I know a lot of us maybe within our own circles we know all these facts but most people don't or they don't know enough. Like, maybe they know a little bit, but they kind of just choose to turn away from it. So you really have to present them with, like, the realities of it. Um, And yeah, greenwashing is really, really difficult. I personally just... Because even sometimes, like, even I get convinced by it. And then another friend in the environmental community will be like, wait, what are you doing? Like, this is obviously not right. So I really need friends to hold me accountable as well. But for me, what I found most helpful is supporting
0: small local biz. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So basically, I should start bringing a stick along, and then whenever I see someone drinking Nest coffee, I just hit them once in a while. Jokes aside, yeah. I mean like
2: <laughs> yeah, I think, actually, that stick just smack it out of their hands. Uh, <laughs> but um, I, I think what this topic about greenwashing kind of says is this very real desire within people to support um, climate movements that are possibly accessible and fe- make people feel like they're doing good. And I think it's because people kind of oscillate between these two feelings, which is ultimate despair uh, about the fact that they can't do anything as individuals, which corporations benefit off, which is why I think the whole thing on climate joy is so important in getting people to be involved. Or they oscillate into this feeling that they are actually making change by buying more H&M clothing and donating their old um, clothes that they've probably only wore once. So I think um, I I would like, um, Kate, your perspective on the larger scale issue of where do you think, the given your work in Climate Circles in Singapore, where you think the government is going with um, climate action and their perspective on that, if you could speak on it. Um. Yeah. Okay, this
1: is an interesting one because... I actually just came from, like, a close-up consultation with PMO yesterday. And, what well, I can say that we are definitely in a very different place from we were, like, a few years ago when I first started out. So, for example, this year Singapore announced, oh, we're going to go net zero by or around mid-century. It is kind of a step forward because it's a bit closer, I think, to where we want it to be. Previously, they were like, we'll be net zero as as viable in the second half of the century, and they were only going to half emissions mm. um, by 2050. But now they're saying, well, well, we'll try and reach net zero a bit closer to 2050. Well, oh, that's the assumption I'm making. Mm. Um, they've just been very careful in the languaging there. So there's very little to kind of hold them to because they could later come back and say, well, 2060 is kind of around mid-century, and they would be... Experience. They would not be
2: incorrect. Exactly. Yeah.
1: So I think that's one thing, which is that even though it feels like we're making progress, and we are, there's still these little nuances that as climate advocates, we have to be very cautious about and not like be complacent about it. That's yeah. number one. Number two is we are definitely pushing out more things like electrification, um, like EVs. There's a lot of incentives for it now. But then again, it's still being powered by natural gas, yeah. and this again yeah. goes back to the fact that Singapore is AE disadvantaged, alternative energy disadvantage. And that part, I can kind of understand the government is caught in a bind because there's not much they can do about that specifically. Um, I'm sure people in like MFA and MTI are trying to work out something with our neighboring countries, but energy security would be an issue. Yeah. Um. But then, so that's kind of what the government is constrained by. Point number three is things like, okay, so let's talk about nature and this whole one million trees thing. Yeah. One million trees is, I mean, great if they are planting trees, but if you're going to cut down a forest, then don't bother planting your trees, <laughs> honestly. Like... It's just things like this that really don't make sense to me. And I guess you could actually call it greenwashing mm. because that's kind of what they're doing, right? They're saying, well, we are helping nature by planting this many trees. But recently, I'm not sure if, you, if you've if you heard, there's a number of farms in Singapore that didn't get their lease extended um, yeah. because we want to replace it with like either use the space for military or use the space for higher tech agriculture. Um but we're talking about preserving whatever pockets of nature we have left. Yeah. Right. And it's not like we are asking Singapore to be filled with a hundred percent biodiversity. I think to make things very clear, we are just trying to save like the less than one percent that is remaining. The
2: existing that is yeah. there. Uh, yeah.
1: And we've already wiped out most of it. So we're really just trying to save that last pocket. Yeah. Whereas sometimes when you bring this argument up, they'll be like well you can have biodiver- like if Singapore's common biodiversity what's the point if you don't have housing but it's not an it's equal it's not a dichotomy right yeah and it's not an equal playing field to begin with yeah. because there's really so little biodiversity <laughs> left in the first place Um, so that is one thing that I do feel or that yeah. I disagree with the government on in terms of policy stance yeah
2: I, I like the point about cutting down forest and putting in trees, because I think you could say maybe the government can't see the forest for the trees. and <laughs> That's a but, really good one. <laughs> but uh, I really um, thought about this idea about where our economic um, kind of progress comes from, because upon independence, the really the main engine, uh, a large engine for our growth was the oil refining that we did, or be that Changi Airport as a transit hub for flights. And these are things that are not really going to be decarbonized anytime soon. So I, I, I do wonder what your perspective is on, and I think we also brought this question up earlier about the economic sacrifices we might have to make for a more sustainable Singapore, and how willing... Singaporeans or even the government is to do that. I, I know there will be arguments that we could build um, a green economy based on green bonds and uh, the, the trading of renewable energy. But in the short term, I think there would be these economic consequences. And I wonder who these uh, consequences would impact the most. Would it be the the owner of the oil business or the employee working in the refining factory? So, uh, so what is your perspective on that?
1: No, you're 100% right that The journey to net zero is going to be extremely painful and costly. um, And it's going to cost a lot of jobs. um, And I think that's why it's so hard for the government to just come out and take a stance against it. Um, There's definitely a lot of people working on Jurong Island who are going to be very heavily impacted by it. So again, this is really difficult because it's recognizing that it's, it's definitely not the leaders of these companies. Who are going to be impacted? It's the employees and like the everyday Singaporeans. Um, And already energy costs are rising recently. And so I do think like Singaporeans who don't know much about the climate crisis, if they look at environmental advocates advocating for energy transition and they look at the energy bill, it kind of turns them away from the environmental movement. So these, again, we have to be very careful about it. At the same time, though, I think there's a sense of urgency with regards to the climate change that Singapore just does not have, which yeah. I have seen in my experience in the US in Stockholm Plus 50 at the UN Ocean Conference. It's a very different space because in these specific like spaces, there are so many people struggling with it because... There's all these deadlines that we have to hit like 2030, 2050 and yeah. these are not very far away like 2030 is just eight years away um, and we are definitely not on track to where we need to be yeah So I mean there's just all these different tensions to balance which is so difficult but at this stage you ask if you ask me I'm like oil is clearly a, like a no. Um, that's my personal stance on it which is that we already know how much harm it has created so it just frustrates me that we are still not just like how do I say this I mean we are still expending oil and coal when these are like definitely pollutive and are worsening the situation it's not like we're doing an all-out transition to renewable energy Yeah. yeah yeah so you could you could say that like for example, when people tell me, oh, Shell is like investing in, re- in renewable energy. I'm like, yes, they are, but that's still like a very small percentage of their business. They are still building new oil rigs in the Gulf of Mexico, still expending oil production there. Um, so, it's again, this is kind of greenwashing because they only market the renewable energy part which actually forms a very small part of their operation.
0: And that pisses me off also because like if you look at the stats right, I'm not sure whether this was ExxonMobil or Shell, but they spend more on advertising their renewable stuff than actually investing into it and they're still spending hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars on climate disinformation. And
1: like,
0: It's just like so frustrating like on the end of governments, I'm just gonna transition a bit to the next question, like I feel like there have been a lot of unfavorable decisions made by governments around the world recently be it the SCOTUS' decision to reduce the EPA's ability to govern uh, air standards in the US, or like Germany still building coal plants as a move away from Russian energy independence. But I feel like what first me the most is like, if you look at the average age of a lot of these politicians, if you look at SCOTUS, it's like above 65. It's like people that should retire three years ago, still in the, in the government, making decisions that they don't fully comprehend, and just clinging on to and whatever they're power they And that not going to have. impact them, because they will most likely not be alive.
2: When uh, exactly, when we have to suffer the consequences, and then you look at like, okay,
0: regardless of your beliefs on whether Greta Thunberg is really mm. like informed or whatever, right? The amount of sheer like hate I've seen towards her from like mm. especially the older generations, uh, that are like conservative leaning, okay, maybe I have a bias against conservatives, but like, <laughs> but, like, yeah, the amount of toxicity I've seen for someone just trying to push a message has been insane. So, like, my question in essence is, do you think that this situation will improve as we slowly see more like younger politicians enter the like the governments around the world or do you think this like chain of misinformation of denial will continue on for the near future
1: Mm, good question um I don't know are young people willing to go into parliament (laughs) I mean it's a very difficult space to be in so if there are young people in parliament making the right decisions that will obviously shift things but I'm Not really sure Like if I see that happening I guess you could see like AOC Is an example Ish But How much impact Can that really make Also Is it just getting more polarized As opposed to Shifting the needle These are all Questions I'm just like Speaking off the top of my head Hmm. But mm, Yeah I guess it's a really difficult question Um because it's not something that we are seeing yet. And something else I would raise is that I think a lot of us are still kind of in an echo chamber-ish because I met a lot of people while in college. Okay, and I go to a pretty good school, right? There are young people who still do not believe in climate change or like they know that the climate is changing but they see it as a natural process. Which to me really (laughs) is absolutely crazy because like these are really smart people who will probably end up working in government, like becoming politicians or becoming like the top management of some kind of banking company. And these are the beliefs they hold. And so I think we have to be very clear eyed in knowing that we could like young when we say young people who does that really refer to yeah right and young people is like a wide spectrum um people who are speaking up on about it like sure that there is a growing number including like all three of us here but there's also a bunch of people that we cannot just like completely neglect and take for granted that they hold the same views as us
2: yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, I I'm no, no, no. I, I, I think it's a very important point to bring up because young people aren't a homogenous group. If you are a super privileged young person who is not going to feel the impacts of um, climate change and could simply migrate up north, then there is no reason for you to really take part in the activism that is needed to stop climate change, especially given the ticking the clock that we are on when yeah. it comes to the issue. Um I think um, which is why I think Kate, the the work that you do is so important right because solving climate change is going to take sacrifices from people from all across, uh, all walks of life the privileged are going to be have to are going to be taxed more to kind of subsidize the transition to green energy and to reduce the impact that the underprivileged are going to face from this so I think the that's why education kind of forms the basis of any climate action but then also the uh, higher scale like activism and convincing governments to actually go out and do the things that are needed to make the policies and regulations to solve the issue and force corporations.
1: Yeah, and I think jumping off that, like, we don't have to wait for young people to be able to enter parliament. Yeah. I mean, like, I can't even vote yet, right? So, <laughs> But there are still ways that you can kind of get plugged into that space, which is, writing to your MP, volunteering with a local, like, political party. Like, there are still avenues to make your voice heard in parliament. Um, and obviously, like, having a young person in parliament would be great to speak up on all these different issues. But there are people in that space already. So, like, try talking to them and convincing them. Um, in Singapore, we also have NMPs. Like, yeah. So if you're not comfortable with taking a stance politically yet, then also you can just write to NMPs. I mean yeah. that's what they are there for, which is to represent all these different views.
0: Hmm. Well, which is where? Um, no, actually we'll go. For it. Yeah, so we have talked a bit about what people can do, right? But it's also like, I feel like there's two like two issues like in particular that make climate change so difficult. One is the fact that the people that contribute the most to it, right, in terms of pollution or carbon emissions, aren't the ones that feel the greatest amount of damage. So they solve sort of this like distancing that we talked about earlier. It's also the fact that corporations hold so much power compared to these like non-profit organizations or like social groups, right? So it's like really like being able to tackle that forward. Like, how do you compete with an oil company that can lobby millions of dollars into the pockets of politicians when like the average millennial is in debt? So like, don't
1: <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> Okay, no, you're right in that sense, but I think okay, I keep referring to the U.S. because that's just the space I'm most familiar with. But if you look at people like AOC and Bernie Sanders... They were able to like run a campaign entirely on grassroots... Without taking money from oil and gas. Which to me shows that there are like people who are interested enough... Like this huge amount of people who can like raise millions of dollars... Just out of pocket. Um, and so there are ways to compete with them. It's just... You really have to... Yeah. It's, it's just a lot of effort. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And I guess fundamentally we have to remember that... Corporations can't vote... So, we should always try to get to use, I guess the democratic tools that are available to prove that numbers still outweigh, hopefully the the millions of dollars and billions of dollars that corporations okay. can pump into the political system. I think um, maybe if uh, we could wrap up the conversation and get um, Kate's perspective on. Simply, I, I would just like to know uh, what do you aim to do further in the climate space and what you hope uh, our listeners can do further in the climate space?
1: Mm. Um. Personally, I'm still not really sure yet. I just finished my first year of college so I still have like three years to figure my life out. <laughs> but I think a common question I get is like, oh, are you still going to continue being my OB, making a business, things like that? Um, short answer is no. I think... VIOB I was really lucky because that was like my entry point into the movement but it's not something I can foresee myself doing long term like I just meant for it to be a small initiative I didn't expect it to grow to whatever it is today Um, but definitely sustainability is going to be like at the center of my career right now I'm thinking journalism or climate communications because I feel like there's still a lot of work to be done in terms of breaking down all these things for like the everyday person who doesn't necessarily care about climate so that could be a potential path um, but yeah that's that's just for me and then in terms of what I wish like other people could do well I have a very long list <laughs> so let me try and prioritize it <coughs> I think we could start with the basics which is really things like switching to reusables um, not always just really like cutting down consumption wherever you can. So the other day I was wearing a shirt, and then my friends like I was telling my friends, "Oh, I've been wearing this since like 2012," and they were like shocked because my friends change their wardrobe like sometimes once a year, every six months. I couldn't like, I couldn't care less, honestly. I just wear the same things like all the time. It doesn't make a difference to me. So simple things like like that, like in terms of cutting down much you shop um, the things that you put on your plate right like switching to more plant-based options I think these are things that we've kind of the environmental space has talked about a lot and these are that I, I don't want to repeat all of it here but yeah yeah, that's one um, so just really being more conscious about that but secondly I really hope people can get a bit more like politically active in terms of if you have something to say just like make it known where be it posting it on social media or writing a letter to like your local representative. I think people don't realise that social media actually the like MPs uh, or the government does look at that as a proxy sometimes, especially now. Um and these are that's something I've heard directly coming from like parliamentary representatives, which is that they do look at the comments and the things that people post. So don't underestimate that platform. As like as long as you kind of just post it you never know what like where yeah. it may end up or where it may go yeah just be be balanced about it <laughs> and don't get puff mud so that you fact check everything and this is a legitimate concern mm. for people who are speaking up on issues which yeah. it should not be the case but um be very precise in your wording
0: yeah, yeah. Actually I'm pretty optimistic about the future of like what the government in Singapore particularly is going to do about climate change even if it's been a bit slow so far, but to be honest this conversation has been leaning more on the depressing side So just as one last thing before we end, I want each of us to share maybe like one positive news we've seen about climate change recently So like, I'll just start first, I think like, so I followed this like, account called The Happy Broadcast on uh, Instagram and they share like some positive news and something that made me really happy right We're seeing that the humpback whale population has increased a lot since 1950 I just like yeah, I don't I'm like I'm I'm a bit like Kate in the sense that I'm not that connected to nature. I do it more because I find the engineering and economic side of it more important and the impact it has on people. But like still seeing news of like animals or ecosystem recovering has been honestly has made me a bit more optimistic about the issue. Yeah. Um
2: I guess for me it has been a bit more local. I'm very happy that newer housing projects are trying to use um, very large number of golf courses we have in this country for some reason, instead of cutting down forests that already exist, primary or secondary. So I think I'm very happy about that. Uh, renewable energy projects, uh, though uh, I'm still a bit unsure about the impact they have on vulnerable populations in other countries, I'm very happy that we are importing renewable energy, be that from Laos and in the future also Australia. So I think this is a great step forward that kind of provides us some um, alternative to our geographical constraints.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, for myself, I would say this is something that's a bit smaller scale. But going back to deep sea mining, I actually reached out to quite a number of MPs about it. And a lot of them didn't know it was happening, but they are equally shocked and angry. And so they are planning to raise it in parliament or just get it on people's radar somehow um, so I see that as a win because like no one was talking about it before so hopefully in the next few months we'll have conversations going
0: honestly that's, that's such great. a great, great way to end up today's podcast I think this is one of the more meaningful and like informative podcasts we have done in a while so Kate thank you so much for taking us taking out like time from your busy schedule to join us for this and like I'll be including a few links that everyone mm-hmm. in the audience can visit later but thanks a lot for joining us today and I hope everyone listening to this podcast has a great week and we'll catch you all on, on the next one. Uh, and perhaps, Kate, you could share where people can follow you to find out more
2: information on everything that you've been up to.
1: Um, I can just include links, but main thing is my Instagram, which is sg. Yep, right. I'll look at a link That's to
0: that. That's great. All right, see uh-huh. ya.